Hi, you are listening to the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. In the article they wrote for Educational Psychologists, my guest today quoted James Baldwin, who, in 1962, wrote, Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. The field of psychology has a lot to face and a lot to change. Failure to acknowledge past and present racism, racial discrimination, and human hierarchy prompted the American Psychological Association in 2021 to adopt a formal apology to people of color for the organization's role in harms to these people. The various subdisciplines of APA, including educational psychology, bear commensurate responsibility. The field of educational psychology has much work to do to face its history of racism and its current actions that perpetuate such racism, which is why I'm grateful to Camden Strunk and Carrie Onjevsky for writing the article we are discussing today. I hope it helps the field better face its past and present to foster better change in the future. Dr. Camden Strunk is an associate professor in the Research, Evaluation, and Assessment Program in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University. His work focuses on critical quantitative methodologies, queer studies, and anti-racism in educational research. Dr. Kerry Onjewski is a professor in social foundations and qualitative methods in the College of Education at Auburn University. Her current work focuses on the development of educators' anti-racist dispositions and practices. Today, we're talking about Camden and Carey's 2023 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Racisms of Commission and Omission in Educational Psychology, a Historical Analysis and Systematic Overview. Camden and Carey, I truly appreciate you doing this work and publishing it in Educational Psychologist, and thanks for joining me here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start here. Camden, this is a necessary and appropriately critical article. What led you to want to write that kind of piece? Yes, I think at the time that we started writing this, Carrie and I were both at the same institution at Auburn University together, where I was the coordinator of our educational psychology program there. And when we started, this was back in 2020, shortly after Division 15 and APA had adopted their sort of initial statements of anti-racism in response to the murder of George Floyd and other killings that summer. We sort of started from this position of What does it really look like for educational psychology to take up a a position of anti-racism? And to what extent is that happening? At the same time, Division 15 had announced sort of a a special small grants program. So we decided to apply for that to get some support to fund some graduate students to help work on data collection for this, which we were awarded, which obviously made a big difference in being able to do the work. And I think, yeah, both of us are educational psychologists by training and both recognize the ways that we were trained that in a really color evasive way, mm-hmm. in a way that really centered whiteness in a lot of ways mm-hmm. that for me at least felt almost like a personal reckoning of what have I been involved in helping advance and build? What have I been trained into? What would it look like to shift that? That's really important work. And I'm glad that you took it up. And your article has a number of really important messages and some of it's just about the framing, which was helpful for me. So, you know, Carrie, can you help us understand the kind of like macro level, micro level, meso level organizational racism framing that you used and then kind of where educational psychology as a field fits in those levels? Yeah, we we leaned on a theory that comes out of sociology to sort of help us to think about the ways in which what we see as sort of macro structures related to education, uh, and that's, you know, the system writ large, right, and Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. kind of pervasive outcomes 
of education broadly, which we early in the paper acknowledge includes violence, exclusion, Mm -hmm. incarceration of children and young people, and particularly Black children and young people that sort of macro level view. And then also our own work with individual teachers. I work as a teacher educator and have invested a lot of my career in trying to help pre-service teachers build dispositions that will serve them and their students well in their classrooms. And so this sort of tension, right, between these huge systems and then the individual actors in them. And we found this theory by Ray to be really helpful in identifying these sort of middle level entities that influence both the micro and the macro. And Ray argues that with, in terms of racism, that those middle level or meso level entities, which he terms organizations often go unexamined in the role they play in perpetuating anti-Blackness, white supremacy, and other forms of oppression because we tend to focus, sociologists at least, tend to focus on, you know, macro structures and individual actors. And I think in education, we've tended to follow suit. And Mm -hmm. so again, it just felt useful to think about that middle level of organization And Camden and I came to believe that the field um, of educational psychology really fits what Ray describes as a Mm mesolevel structure. Yeah, that's really helpful framing. I think people do sometimes think about systems, uh, kind of the broad macro sense like you described, and it can be easy to not think about the mesosystems in which we are a member and what influence they have. And I like how you put that, you know, the meso level affects both the micro level and the macro level, right? It's kind of in both directions. So with that kind of framing in mind, let's start with educational psychology's racisms of commission. So what did your historical analysis of the field reveal regarding educational psychology and white supremacy and anti-black racism? I don't think it's possible to think about the history of educational psychology without simultaneously taking up the history of the eugenics movement in the United States. The foundation of our field is really intricately tied to the rise and um, sort of perpetuation of eugenics in the U.S. And that's true of psychology more broadly. That's true of a lot of fields of medicine and other social sciences too. But of course, obviously in this piece, we're thinking about our field of educational psychology. And, you know, when we think about sort of the, the founders of the field, most of those folks were you know, literally card-carrying eugenicists mm-hmm. who devoted a fair amount of their writing to ideas of white supremacy, anti-blackness, and often anti-Semitism as well. What happens is we often learn the names and like, oh, well, this person is responsible for behaviorism or something else, right? Without ever diving into sort of their ideological positions that led them to do the work that we still sort of lean on. So I think our field has a nice long history of being involved in upholding systems that position people of color, especially um, Black people, as being sort of intellectually, physically, culturally inferior in ways that justify systems of domination and violence. Mm -hmm. The argument we make in the piece, which, you know, I would stand behind is that I don't think there's a whole lot of educational psychologists, you know, here and now who would identify as eugenicists or who would support those ideas or who would actively hold to white supremacist ideas knowingly or intentionally. But I think we do see a lot of carryover of those ideas that end up getting sort of laundered and positioned as neutral ways of thinking about knowing and doing psychology and education Mm -hmm. that just go Mm -hmm. unexamined because that history is a painful history. So we often don't sit with it or, or deal with it. 
And that kind of, as you call it, laundering of the history, I think, does a disservice both to the field's history, but also kind of its current perspectives. And I, I think in the piece, you do a nice job of arguing that failure to talk about that history, to acknowledge it, to reconcile with it, to do something about it is kind of perpetuating the harms. And then you talked about how there was this shift in the field from the biological explanations for racial hierarchies to more social explanations. And this kind of shift from racisms of commission to racisms of omission. So can you talk to us a little bit about kind of what are racisms of omission and what role do they play in our work today? Camden and I have really thought about omission in three interrelated but distinct ways. The first is just the field's omission of that history, right? The ways Mm -hmm. in which the work of those we might consider to be the founding fathers are sort of whitewashed Mm -hmm. and then perpetuated as distinct from or separate from their ideological beginnings in the eugenics movement in very explicit anti-Black racism So that's one, is the omission of the details of the history of the field. Mm -hmm. Another is just the omission of the perspectives, knowledges, belief patterns, epistemologies of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color in the field. So there's little evidence that the perspectives and experiences of people of color are influencing the work in the field. And the third way in which we conceptualize omission as operating in the field are the ways in which researchers and the discipline more broadly kind of implicitly invest in whiteness by omitting discussion and concern with race and racism. Right. There's the omission of the history, like you mentioned. There's an omission of just literally the physical presence of people of color. We're a really white field in terms of our demographics. The historical trend actually is in recent years, we've gotten a little bit whiter Mm-hmm. than even maybe 10 years ago. So there's this omission of literally omitting people, but then I think the ways that our frameworks still omit race and racism as important, they're really race-evasive frameworks, and race-evasive frameworks ultimately end up recentering whiteness in a lot of really core and central ways. So it's not just a demographic omission, right? As we point out in the piece, you can have demographic inclusion and still have anti-Blackness, right? We can bring people of color into organization and the organization can still perpetuate anti-Black racism. But Mm -hmm. the fact that we are not demographically diverse is one form of omission. But just as important as that is that the ways that like, when you look at our major theoretical frameworks, none of them, none of them have racism as a horror piece. And as folks have pointed out, most of those frameworks were developed with primarily, or in some cases, exclusively white samples and researchers. So I think we end up with omission in all these ways. So the lack of focus upon issues of race and racism, I mean, this reminds me of work by Jessica DeQueer Gumby, Paul Schutz, Riti Kumar, Akane Zusho, and other people on race-focused and race-re-image research. I mean, is, is that the kind of research you're thinking about when you say we haven't done enough of it? So yes, I think in part, we do mean like the race reimaged um, approaches that folks have put forward critical race approaches. And I think those would be important interventions in the field, as well as right other people have written about the ways that the field needs to take up critical studies of disability, studies of mm-hmm. gender and sexuality, to think about mm-hmm. the really important ways that not just like individual identities, but 
but the systems of power and domination that are built around those identities are built like sort of above those identities that construct those identities in certain ways mm-hmm. that th- those are systems that really go underexamined. And so, yeah, I would say, yes, the race reimagined approaches that folks have written about in EdSight, critical race theory approaches, as well mm-hmm. as critical studies of disability, indigenous studies, queer studies, mm-hmm. trans studies um, approaches are, mm-hmm. are really what we, we as a field need to take more seriously and centrally. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned those. You know, there's a bunch of different perspectives that I think have not been included and and in many cases actively excluded. And so I'm glad that you talked about the many ways in which the field needs to reflect and do better. You actually did a kind of a study of educational psychology's published literature looking for evidence of an explicit focus on, in this case, Black people or anti-Black racism. What did you find briefly in your analysis? We did invest in a systematic review of the literature coming out of what we thought the field would agree are the sort of six central educational psychology specific journals. We read everything Mm -hmm. or at least, you know, gave a cursory review of everything published in those six journals, which are Journal of Educational Psychology, Journal of Experimental Education, Contemporary Educational Psychology, Educational Psychologist. Educational Psychology Review, and Educational Psychology. Um, and we, we, we looked at every piece published in those journals between 2011 and 2021. And yeah, as you mentioned, we were, we were looking to see which of them are taking up race and or racism as a central issue. And what we found is just that, that very few of them are. You know, that this racism of omission is happening in the publication space of educational psychology. And we found that many of those papers that did take up a focus on Black people or on anti-Black racism, many of them are published in special issues, right? And so Mm -hmm. in much the same way that our work was supported by a special grant opportunity, much of the work that does focus on anti-racism is published in these sort of special publication opportunities rather than Mm -hmm. being kind of consistently and continually a part of the discourse in the field. So that lack of consistent focus in the discourse, I think that leads to a number of challenges for the field in terms of avoiding this racism of omission, right? And kind of working its way out of it and embracing a more anti-racist stance. So given the lack of publications on these types of issues, and then they're kind of siloing in special issues. You know, what do you think are some things that need to be done? What's the work the field needs to do to do a better job of addressing these issues in the future? I can think of a few things. One that immediately comes to mind for me is where in our ed psych doctoral programs would students learn race frameworks for understanding education, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I know I didn't have it. I think in many programs, you, you might be able to, but it wouldn't necessarily be a required course. And it may not be taught by core ed psych faculty. It might be taught by somebody in another department, for example. I wonder about the message that we're sending early career scholars by sort of marginalizing these topics from our core curricula. Mm-hmm. I also think, you know, something that we observed was that many times people who would publish a piece or two in one of these core ed psych journals about anti-black racism or using a critical race framework, then didn't really publish a lot in the ed psych journals again. They sort of end up in other journals, maybe ed foundations mm-hmm. journals or sociology of ed journals or somewhere else, publishing the rest of their agenda. And so, you know, we wondered to what extent the 
editorial practices of these journals might need to shift a bit to be sort of a welcoming home for this kind of work. So people will send it to an ed psych journal instead of to a journal that may be outside of their field. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that right speaks to some of the work that editors, editorial boards, even reviewers might need to do. I wonder what it would look like if reviewers reading a piece that never mentioned race or racism a single time asked in their review comments, what about racism? Is that, did you consider that in this, this study or what about, mm-hmm. um, there was a, a presentation at AERA where someone had looked at the number of studies reporting race and they found something like 40% didn't even report the racial demographics of their sample. Hmm. So, you know, there's these things that it's like, well, these could be questions from reviewers or editors to help shift the field a little bit. And then I, again, I think making these spaces maybe a little bit more friendly to race work might draw some folks in who may have felt like they need to find other homes for their work. And I also wonder to what extent those shifts might also help with inclusion in other senses, like the actual demographic representation of the field by taking these issues seriously, would we be more welcoming home for scholars of color in general, regardless of their scholarly agenda? Mm-hmm. I think in as much as the research scholarship in the field is also connected to the teacher education or educator preparation work that those of us in the field do. There's a need to sort of replicate what Camden's talking about in the publication space in our pedagogical spaces. We have to really be much more thoughtful about the way we present ideas, particularly foundational ideas of the field. We need to acknowledge the historical context in which those ideas were developed We need to help our students, be they future educational psychologists or future classroom teachers, to develop critical consciousness and critical literacy and to engage with the complexity of the field and its beginnings. I really like all of those suggestions. You know, it just reminds me of something I've seen, which is where, you know, I think for some period of its history, psychology adopted either an explicit or kind of an implicit universalist approach, thinking that these were somehow kind of foundational aspects of being a human. And I think there's lots and lots of evidence and modern thinking to suggest that that's not really, really a great way to think about psychology in general, and that there's all of this social phenomena that interact with the ways that people think and engage with the world. And it sounds like you're advocating for making that kind of explicit when educators in psychology talk about the field and talk about its history and not just a social perspective, but also a critical perspective. So how do you think people who are training future psychologists, future educational psychologists, I mean, what are good ways for them to introduce that for students in ways that they can adopt those lenses and bring those lenses to what they learn next in psychology? I mean, I think, you know, primarily the courses that I teach are quantitative methods Mm -hmm. courses. And I think one of the things that has been really, in some ways, transformative to have those conversations go is mm-hmm. by week one, we talk about epistemologies and philosophies of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about mm-hmm. right at the beginning of class, here's objectivism and what objectivist and post-positivist perspectives might hold. Mm-hmm. And quantitative methods emerged from this way of thinking. But let's look at some interpretivist or constructivist approaches, critical approaches, post-structural approaches, Mm -hmm. what their critiques of this objectivist way of doing research have been. And that's not to try to convince students to take one perspective over the other, but rather like, let's understand what perspective people are coming at this work from. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps like within when we encounter, for example, critical race theory or queer theory or critical studies of disability. Those are from a different epistemological framework than Mm -hmm. expectancy value theory might be, for example, Mm -hmm. or achievement goal theory or or any of our other 
I think in terms of motivation theory most easily, but any of the other learning motivation essay theories that might be more objectivist or interpretivist in some cases. Mm-hmm. And I think starting with out, laying out some of those tensions and the ways that like those tensions are historical and they are social and they are political and they're ideological, I think can open some room for then asking different questions of some of the empirical pieces that we might encounter or thinking differently about how the theories that exist right might yield different insights about the data that we're examining, for example. Yeah, I like that. So even in courses that some students walk into thinking perhaps non-consciously adopting kind of a absolutist or kind of this or that type framing, it sounds like even in those quant courses, you're exposing epistemology, ontology, axiology of the ideas and helping students recognize like, oh, these are these are human constructions and there could be different constructions of what our world is and how we know it. And so that gives them the tools then to make their own decisions about kind of what perspectives they feel best help them. Is that the kind of perspective that could be useful in other courses beyond quantitative courses? I mean, I think so. You know, part of what brought Camden and myself together is that we both serve as methods faculty in the same department before he moved Mm -hmm. on to Virginia Commonwealth. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're certainly tackling those kinds of questions in, you know, qualitative methods courses. And also, I think trying to do that in more content driven courses. You know, I think the theme Mm -hmm. that holds all of that together is as faculty really explicitly undermining the myth of neutrality, mm-hmm. right? which mm-hmm. which I think is what we're doing when we push students to think about the historical roots of, of epistemologies. It's what we are doing when we acknowledge that, you know, hey, these founders had important ideas, their ideas continue on in the field, and also these ideas have deep ties to white supremacist, or eugenicist, anti-Black mm-hmm. ideologies you know, how, how do we make sense mm-hmm. of that? I think the other element uh, as we move forward as a field is, you know, we have some tough conversations to have. And so, you know, there need to be forums in which we can do that work together, you know, figure out how are we collectively, right, going to treat the work of, you know, those who are considered to be founding scholars. Mm-hmm. What is that going to mm-hmm. look like? How can we get maybe not unified, but at least you know, an important conversation happening. And I think that conversation should include new and emerging scholars. Mm -hmm. And I think to go back to something we were talking about before, that kind of intersecting place between pedagogy and publication is also to think really carefully about what's in our textbook. Um, Mm -hmm. And how Mm -hmm. how do we present textbook content um, in ways that would support faculty members in presenting these ideas in ways that make it clear that they're not neutral Mm -hmm. and they're not ahistorical. Yeah, that, that brings me back to something I think Camden said earlier, where you could imagine how reviewers, when they look at a piece that doesn't address race at all, they could ask the question, well, is racism relevant here? Or is a critical perspective needed here? So rather than it being kind of a special target, quote unquote, or something foundational to a paper, you can kind of flip it and say, for every manuscript we review, we should at least ask the question of whether these perspectives are needed, necessary, and useful. It strikes me as similar to what you're suggesting when it comes to pedagogy and also publications and kind of focusing on that. Yeah, I mean, and I can share as an example that another field I do quite a bit of work in is queer studies and education. And um, our, mm-hmm. our, our sort of major organization would be the Queer Studies SIG at AERA. And one of the things that we did back in summer of 2020 was we said, okay, we're going to make a criteria for our major awards, just add a criteria, not replace one. We're adding a criteria about engagement with anti-Black racism, intersectionality, and related perspectives. Hmm. And it was pretty astonishing 
how, because you could still certainly get published. You could be on the program. You could even win an award doing the same work that we've always done. And that field is also pretty notorious for being race evasive historically. Mm. Lots of white cisgender people have been sort of the, the stalwarts of that field for decades. But it was really astonishing how much of a shift that we saw even in just one year in the sorts of things that people were submitting and writing about just by signaling this is something that's really important to us. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, when people see this kind of investment, they actually do respond to it in these ways that do start to shift conversations a little bit. I mean, I think it would be hard to imagine a conversation in that field about an award now where we wouldn't be talking about it, right? Because it's, it's just, it's even just in three years, it's become just a part of what we think is important. Right. And, and that kind of signaling is really important, right? So earlier you mentioned how there are some scholars that you found where they would publish maybe one piece in an educational psychology journal that was focusing on race or race-related research or race reimaging, and then you'd see subsequent publications in journals outside the field. And I think if race, racism, critical perspectives, et cetera, are not an explicit focus of the field, then I certainly understand why scholars interested in that work would go somewhere else. I mean, that's that's a loss for educational psychology, but it's understandable until the field actually takes an active perspective and an active role in forwarding these issues. So that's that's a great example of what a group could do in terms of the queer studies thing. So I really appreciate your article, and I'm so glad that you decided to publish it in Educational Psychologist, and I, I really hope our readers take some time to read it carefully and think about it, reflect upon it, think about what they should do in response to it. I know that our listeners often benefit from hearing from authors who have been successful in getting a manuscript published in Educational Psychologist. Do you have any advice for them, any tips, any tricks, anything that you would suggest they think about when they're trying to write their own manuscript for the journal? That is a good question. And I I don't, I don't have a good answer for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do want to, in this space, kind of acknowledge that we we were really fortunate in terms of the editorial choices that were made. You know, we received really supportive reviews and that that was even possible, I think, is a credit to the editorial staff and really thoughtful reviewer assignments. Certainly that's out of the control of authors, but I I do think that, you know, when editors do a nice job, right, of thinking carefully about who the reviewers should be, that A, that should be par for the course, but also it should be noted that it's appreciated. And I mean, I think I just want to further acknowledge that I've been pleasantly surprised by the reception of the piece. And that makes me hopeful that perhaps we're ready as a field to have these kind of painful conversations I don't want to be naive about that. I know, you know, that white supremacy and anti-blackness are insidious and plastic and persistent, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. there has been a positive reception in a way that I maybe didn't necessarily anticipate. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful mm-hmm. uh, that the conversation will, will move forward in ways that are productive and helpful and, uh, dare I say, even healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think similarly, like, you know, we had a positive experience with the review process with educational psychologists. The reviewers' comments were appropriate and helpful, right? Which is always always great in a review and not always what happens. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we had sent the manuscript. Actually, we initially had sent it for a special issue of a sociology journal, which I'm glad it ended up in EdPsych and better audience probably for the piece. But I think that that round of feedback was helpful to us as well. Mm-hmm. And them essentially saying, we don't see this as a sociology piece, which is true. <laughs> but I think it helped us hone our framing a little bit to get the, the feedback from those folks as well. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a really important message. I'm glad that you mentioned that, right? So um, I think there's a couple of important points there. One is it's okay to submit somewhere and maybe it not get accepted, but get really good feedback that helps you revise it. I, I know that's happened to me where I've gotten feedback from a rejected manuscript that really helped me reframe it in a positive way. And then it's more successful in the second journal. And then again, I just, you know, I'm pleased to hear that you found the review process helpful and the feedback useful. I wish it was always the case. Sometimes authors don't find it quite as helpful, but I do think that as a field, it's important that reviewers remember and that I remember that it's about work. You know, we're reviewing work and it's supposed to be benevolent, right? We're supposed to help authors think about their work and provide a critical but helpful perspective. And so I'm, I'm pleased that you had that experience and I, I hope more people have that in the front of their mind when they're doing reviewing. So I know that both of you do a bunch of different kinds of scholarship. And so I wanted to just take a minute to ask you, you know, and Camden, we can start with you. What are you currently working on that's exciting to you that you're really engaged in? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I'm working on that I'm, I'm pretty excited about. One of which is I'm doing work in the area of trying to integrate ideas from queer theory and quantitative methods. And so we should have a special issue coming out eventually of the Journal hmm. Educational Studies around queering quantitative methodologies. Great. Um, and I say eventually because, you know, the timelines never work out the way we want them to. <laughs> and yeah, I'd say the other larger project I'm working around right now is we're, we're looking at LGBTQ plus affirming mental health care and how the current mm-hmm. project that we have with that is how folks are educated to provide that kind of care. So talking with community members who have sought mental health care, talking with mm-hmm. um, counselors in training, as well as counselor educators and trying to get a handle on what are the, the gaps that exist there between what folks are looking for and what they're getting, what people are being trained to do, what faculty think they're training students to do, which we're finding doesn't line up as well as I think faculty would often love to believe it would. Hmm. So those are two things that I'm thinking about right now that I'm engaged in that I'm excited about. Great. Sounds really interesting and important. Uh, Carrie, what about you? Um, I have a long-standing collaborative project with a colleague, Hannah Baggett. She and I write about anti-Black racism in school discipline, mm-hmm. and um, we're continuing that work. And the sort of the thread we're pulling at right now is about the placement of police in schools. Mm-hmm. In fact, we are eagerly anticipating the publication of our Division 15 policy brief about that topic. Oh, so yeah, we're great. continuing to think to think about that. And more recently, kind of institutionally, I've been tasked with thinking about training and education for responsible conduct of research. That's a new mm-hmm. position for mm-hmm. me in the institution. But I've been doing a lot of thinking about how that training, much like what we offer people in educational psychology, is sort of ahistorical and you know detached from larger socio-historical happenings. And so I've been thinking a lot about how to offer more contextualization for the rules and regulations that guide how we ought to behave and treat others in the research space. Mm, Great. That sounds really valuable. I'm looking forward to seeing that. I know that I would benefit from it. So let's wrap it up there today. I encourage everyone to check out Camden and Carey's article, An Educational Psychologist, entitled Racisms of Commission and Omission in Educational Psychology, a Historical Analysis and Systematic Review. So Camden and Carey, thanks so much for your contribution to the literature, and thanks also for talking to me about it today. Thank you. Thank you. It was good to be with you. Finally, to you, our listener, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to check out our other episodes on your favorite application and consider rating and reviewing us. You can get to all of our past episodes on the APA Division 15 website, and they're all linked under the publication section. So thank you again for listening.